Well, good morning. It is great to see you here, whether you're a guest or a regular attender, and it's exciting for me to be a part of this new series as we kick it off. And before we get going, two things I just have to say. First of all, I have to celebrate the gifts that God has given to the Northridge Church family, and one of those great gifts is the talent of our video team. Isn't that amazing what they put together? It's wonderful. Along with all of our stage designers and set builders who are primarily volunteers, what a phenomenal deal. And the second thing I have to point out, and if you're a guest, you wouldn't know this, but last three weekends, we've had one of our guest teaching pastors here. And wasn't Darren phenomenal? Seriously. He's, he's certainly a very gifted man. He's a pastor in Nashville, but a very good friend in Northridge. And it was just a treasure to have him here for the last couple of weekends, which is great. And if you're a guest, we want you to know we celebrate you. We plan for you. We prepare for you. And we're just hoping God would use this moment, your, your guest visit with us, to impact your life. But we're starting this series called Picture This. Picture This. It's going to take us all the way through Easter. And I can't... I can't encourage you enough, Northridge family, to remember your mission is to wake the world up to Jesus. And this is a great opportunity because this is one of those series that can really wake people up, shake people up. Because we're we're speaking to the wide spectrum of people who have those big questions about God's truth, those big questions about their spiritual lives. And whether they're skeptics or believers, you know, we all have those deals. And we're going to be focusing in on those in Picture This and so I, I really encourage you to be inviting people so that, so that they might experience God in a new and different way. This weekend, we're looking at, picture this, the Bible is true. And let's just start out by being very honest. You don't find a ton of people supporting that idea in our world today, that the Bible's true. It's just not one of the most supported ideas. In fact, many find that idea laughable as if it's some kind of huge joke, like anyone would believe that the Bible is really true, has to be a little bit of a lunatic and a lot of, a lot of ignorant. I mean, that's just who they are. And then there are those people who, who actually believe that there's no way it can be true. I, there's a guy named Bill Maher. Anybody ever watch this comedian, Bill Maher? He's, he's one of these guys. And the whole world's trying to laugh at those who believe the Bible is true, but there's a little bit more to the subject than they might have understood. There are many skeptics in our world who just don't believe that the Bible is true. I mean, they're skeptics, and you you just have to go to an academic setting, and you're going to find these people just not really believing that, that you have a thinking ability if you're going to accept this thing as true, that your IQ must be pretty low, or you must be fairly dysfunctional to be there. And there are a whole lot of skeptics. They believe that at best the Bible is a good book, certainly not God's word, certainly not always true, but maybe you can get some good values out of it. But many of these skeptics believe the opposite. They believe the Bible is a, is a bad book, an evil book, causing most of the problems in this world. There are many who just don't think about the Bible a lot. I mean, they, they just don't think it's relevant. They don't think it matters. They think it more mythology and fairy tale than real and true. And so, you know, why even bother themselves with it? And so as we stand up and say, picture this, the Bible is true, it's really a tough picture to paint in this world. Even those of us who want to embrace it, it's a very difficult picture to embrace and it's a difficult picture to communicate because we know that we'll probably be laughed at, we'll probably be viewed cynically, we'll probably be demeaned and dismissed and so many of us have a real hard time stepping out and painting this picture that we believe the Bible is true. 
But I'm telling you, it's a picture that needs to be painted because Jesus painted it. Jesus thought very differently than the people who are making up the majority in our world today. He believed that the scriptures, as they were presented in his day, mostly Old Testament scriptures, were genuinely God's word. Genuinely true. And even though many were scoffing at the idea of resurrection in his day, he wasn't. He was saying God says he's the God of Abraham, not the not the God of the man who used to live, but the God who is the, the man who's still alive. He is the God of Abraham and Jacob. He believed in it. Even the more fantastic parts, the more difficult parts of, of the scriptures, he affirmed and believed. And there are some really bizarre things in scripture. For example, in Matthew chapter 12, verse 40, Jesus affirmed a story that's, that's universally panned in our world today. He He affirmed that he believed as absolutely true the story of Jonah and the big fish. Now, I say Jonah and the big fish because most people, even if you're not really familiar with the Bible, you've probably heard of Jonah and the whale. Jonah and the whale. The Bible doesn't say whale. The truth is, if Jonah was swallowed by a whale, he would have stayed in the whale until he became fish food. But God could have created, and the Bible seems to affirm he did, a maybe one-time unique fish that was more like a one-room efficiency apartment than anything else. I mean, and this fish came along at the perfect time, which if, if God can speak the universe into existence, he can probably make a fish with a kitchen table in it. And, and this fish swallowed Jonah, and three days later, vomited him out alive to go and do God's bidding. And I know it's It's just fantastic to believe that idea, isn't it? That's just bizarre. We've never seen a fish like that, but you know what Jesus said? He believed it to be true. You can't follow Jesus, claim he was sane, and dismiss that story. The Bible also tells us that Jesus affirmed the story of Noah and the ark in Matthew chapter 24, verses 38 through 39. No on the ark, really. A worldwide flood. And this one dude and his three boys took about 110 years to build an ark. And then the animals, two by two by two by two, came in this ark. And they floated for a while and they repopulated the earth. You know, talk about an idea that's panned in our world today. But Jesus said he believed it was true. Jesus affirmed the story of eating manna in the wilderness in John 6, 49. I mean, you might not know the story of Israel being enslaved in Egypt and then God, as he promised in 400 years, in 400 years, he promised it and he did it, would free them and he did and they walked in the wilderness for 40 years and you know what they ate? They didn't harvest corn and they didn't harvest wheat. God sent down manna each night to feed them for 40 years. A lot of people go, come on. But Jesus affirmed it. You see, we live in a world where the idea that God has spoken, the idea that the Bible is that place he's spoken, and the idea that the Bible is true is absolutely dismissed. But Jesus embraced it. If our world is right, then we are absolutely foolish to follow it, to teach it, to embrace it. But if Jesus is right, we're foolish not to. But either way, it's really important for us to figure this out. It's really important for us to make our choice because if the Bible's not true, let's stop wasting our time. 
But if the Bible is true, let's stop saying we believe it, but not really living it. Let's stop talking about it, but not really doing it. Let's, let's start embracing it fully like Jesus did so that we can experience what Jesus said it would do in our lives. The truth, when you know it, will set you free. Now, I'm going to give you full disclosure because you need to know from where I'm coming. I, for a long time, thought the Bible was laughable in my youth. I, for a long time, was a skeptic of the Bible. Religion just absolutely distorted my view of the Bible and God to a place where I didn't want anything to do with it. But ultimately, I've come to the place where I stand with Jesus. I've made my choice. I believe, as Jesus taught, that the Bible is God's word, that the Bible, the scriptures as we have them today, is his truth. And this weekend, what I want to do is I want to share why. Because I believe the single most important decision you're going to make in your life is going to be whether you believe it's true or not. Because if you don't believe it's true, you can't follow Jesus. You'll never trust in Jesus. You'll never know Jesus. And Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, and the only way to the Father. This is an important issue. And I'm asking you to picture this. In a world that can't, picture this. The Bible is true. Here's the truth that I want you to see. Believing the Bible to be God's word, in spite of what you've heard, in spite of what the media says, in spite of what Bill Maher and his friends say, in spite of what what skeptics and university professors might say, believing the Bible to be God's word is reasonable and intelligent. It's reasonable. It's not irrational. It's not foolish. It's reasonable. It's it's not unintelligent and low IQ. It's intelligent. Look at 1 Thessalonians 2.13. They did this in the beginning of the church. And we also thank God continually, Paul says, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, these men speaking, claiming it to be the word of God, you accepted it not as just the word of men, not just as our teaching, not just as our fairy tales, not just as stuff we're inventing, not just good words that we were writing, but when you heard the word of God, which we were communicating, they claimed, you didn't hear it as just the word of men, but you actually accepted it as the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. Because they accepted it as the word of God, God did a work in their lives that transformed them, which has gone on to today. They overturned the Roman Empire because of this faith, this belief. It's the power of God's word. And I'm telling you, I believe today, just as in that day, it's reasonable and intelligent to believe that the Bible is God's word. But if we're going to get there, we have to understand why. And here's how I made my journey. I just had to think about these things, and I want to encourage you to do the same. Here's the first step for me. If the Bible were God's word, I just concluded it had to say so, right? And there are a lot of people who say the Bible never claims to be God's word. It's a bunch of fantastic weirdos making the Bible to be out something it was never intended to be. That's just wrong. And so I said, if the Bible were to be God's word, it would say so. And here's what I found. It does. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 to 17. All scripture is God-breathed. God breathed it out. It came through the authorship of men, but God was the one compelling them and breathing it out. It's useful because it comes from God for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, training for the right way of living so that the person of God can be thoroughly equipped for every good work. You want to experience life as God designed it. You want to be fully equipped. You want to become the word of God's what you need for every good work. Look at 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20 through 21. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came out by the prophet's own interpretation. They weren't making stories up. For prophecy, the declaration of truth, whether present or predictive, never had its origin in the will of men. 
But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. It was the Holy Spirit authoring God's word through these men. So here's the deal. If it's not God's word, then it's not a good book because it says it's God's word. If it's not God's word and it says it's God's word, what is it a book of? Lies? It's foolish to follow a book that is clearly deceptive and dangerous. And so if it's not God's word, close it and never open it again. But if it is God's word, it's absolutely foolish if we don't listen to it. And it's even more foolish not to live it. We have to make the choice because the Bible says it's God's word. If it's not, close it. If it is, keep it open and live it. The next thought that kind of pursued my journey was, if the Bible were God's word, it would be special. It'd be a special book. Look it. You know, there are a lot of books in this world, a lot of authors in this book, uh, this world, and, you know, some of them are great, some of them are just okay. I wrote a book, wrote, wrote a book, quite a few years ago that was a little bit less than okay. Three people read it, and I appreciate you three who read it. That was very nice of you, but, but you know, it, it, it didn't turn out to be all that special as it related to its impact in the world. But, you know, if I were God and I wrote a book, I'd make sure it was a little bit better received. I, if I were God, I'd make sure that I chose the right publishing house and the right salespeople, right? It would be special, and it is. I mean, let me just give you some examples. It is unbelievably special in its distribution and how it was distributed. Do you realize there is no other book on the planet that is owned or read by more people than this book? There's not even a close second. I mean, not even a close second. I know we hear a lot about different religious writings and different things in the world. They don't even touch the hem of the garment of how the Bible's been distributed. There are literally billions of Bibles that have been printed in this world. And I'm not making this number up. And if you do your research, you'll find that it's a pretty wide spectrum of thought. No less than 2.5 billion, probably no more than 6 billion. <laughs> really? We can't do better than those numbers? It sounds like a government accounting office is kind of doing this work. But somewhere between 2.5 billion and 6 billion Bibles have been printed. That's a lot. And millions more are printed every year. It's just fact. It's been distributed unbelievably. It sounds like something God would do if he were to write a book, don't you think? That it's special for more reasons. It's special in its translation. You know, I mean, we, we often think of language in terms of the language or languages we speak. You know, and so the Bible's in our language, so... There, I read this book in our language. But did you know, and I, I know because the book that I had the privilege of writing has been translated into other languages, and, and I, I understand that for a person to draw benefit from the thoughts of an author, it has to get into their language. But most books are only in one language, the language is written in, and some get into a couple of languages, but that's it. But did you know the Bible has been fully translated into 518 languages? Fully. And did you know that 2,798 languages have at least a portion of the Bible translated into their language? Almost 3,000 languages. No other book comes close. You see, if the Bible were God's word, it would be special. Well, that's pretty special. And for you Americans, you need to know how important this language deal is. I don't know. Do you, do you know what a person who speaks three languages is called? Do you know? Trilingual. You didn't know you were going to go to the University of Michigan this morning, right? 
Um, do you know what a person who speaks two languages is? Bilingual. Do you know what a person who speaks one language is called? An American. Yeah, that's right. Just because the Bible's in English isn't the only thing that counts. It needs to be given to all the people it was written for in all languages. And people have embraced this concept through the, through the centuries to where now it's almost in 3,000 different languages, at least a portion of it. That makes it special. Boy, if it were God's word, it would be like that. If it were God's word, it would be special in how it was proven to be true. You, you probably have never studied textual criticism, but the big thing in textual criticism, if you're going to criticize or figure out or defend a text, is the evidence of its original manuscripts. You know how we protect the Constitution of the United States, and boy, that was the original thing, and it's very, very important to know what our founders said, and so we protect that document. Well, manuscript evidence and accuracy is really important to know what truly happened in history. But some of the greatest works of history, of antiquity, only have a handful of existing manuscripts to support their veracity. You've heard of Sophocles and Homer and Plato and yada yada. Well, university professors quote these guys as if they're the most brilliant people in the world and what they said is absolutely trustworthy, but they only have a handful of manuscripts that don't all agree with each other about what these people say and they act like these people are divine. But the Bible, if it were God's word, would have unbelievable manuscript evidence and accuracy. And guess what? There are 20,000 existing manuscripts to prove the veracity of the Bible, Old Testament and New Testament. And they have unbelievable accuracy with one another. Very few, percentage-wise, discrepancies. It's the most documented book of any book in history. And you know, if God were to write a book, wouldn't he want to make sure people knew it was his? Yeah. If the Bible were God's word, it'd be special because it wouldn't be the writings of a rambling people who kept changing their mind. If God were to write a book, no matter how he wrote it, it would have a unified theme and it would make sense. Well, the unity of the Bible is unbelievable. I love how Geisler and Nick said this in their book, The General Introduction to the Bible. They say it's composed of 66 books, which it is. It was written over a period of some 1,500 years, which it was. 1,500 years to write all 66 books of the Bible. And it took 40 different authors using different languages, containing hundreds of different topics from different cultures, different educational structures, different economic backgrounds, different philosophies of life, and yet they put this book together, and it's not accidental or incidental, as Geisler and Nick says, that the Bible possesses an amazing unity. You know what it all centers on? It centers on the idea of a Messiah as fulfilled in Jesus Christ. In fact, here's what they said. One problem in all of the Bible is presented, sin. One solution is presented in all of the Bible as Savior. All of its pages are unified from Genesis to Revelation. That's impossible. If I was to give you a sentence on this side of the auditorium and have you move it through your row to that side of the auditorium, it would be a different sentence. And what's that? About 40, 50, 100 people in the same moment? You take 40 different people over 1,500 years, different economies, different cultures, different educations, and put together a book, you're going to have ramblings that don't make sense, like, quite frankly, many religious and philosophical writings are from history. But the Bible's not like that. It's unified. Why? Because it wasn't written by 40 people with their own agendas. It wasn't written over 1,500 years by different people. It was written by one author, God, using humans as the instrument. It's his book. It's unified, and that's exactly how it would be if it were God's word. 
If it were God's word, it would be special in its impact because how could God speak and not change people? If it were God's word, when it really changed people, it wouldn't turn them into people of hate, but it would turn them into people of love. Now, I understand there are people who claim the Bible and who live according to religion who are very hateful and spiteful people, but let me tell you something. They're not living according to the positive transformation of this book. They're trying to use this book to transform the world into their image. That's a problem. But when people truly live according to this book, it positively transforms their lives. No book has more broadly influenced the course of world events than the Bible, not even close. Civilization has been more influenced by the Bible than by other book series or any other book or writing in the world. The Bible is a special book, which doesn't prove it absolutely, but it's important to know if it really were God's word. You know, if the Bible were God's word, it would be accurate, right? I mean, God forbid that God himself doesn't know two plus two equals four. I mean, if, if the Bible were God's word, it would be accurate because God claims to know all things beginning from end. And just know, he makes the claim that his word is accurate. Look at Psalm 19, verses 7 to 8. The law of the Lord, speaking of his scriptures, his writings, is perfect. And so because it's perfect and not flawed, it can revive the soul. The statutes, the writings of the Lord are, are trustworthy. So they can take the foolish and make them wise. The, the precepts of the Lord are right. You can count on them. 2 Peter 1.16 says, We didn't follow cleverly invented stories that we made up when we told you about the power and coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. It's, this is truth. This is according to how it happened. If, it were by, if the Bible were God's word, it would be accurate. It wouldn't be flawed. Now, this discussion, I'm going to give you two examples, and this discussion could get very technical, but I've decided, since I can't understand technical stuff, that I'll just make it simple, clear, and succinct. It could go a lot further. There's no way a clear and succinct talking about this can give you the fullness of all you need, but I just want you to get the point. If it were God's word, it would be accurate in prophecy, is the first example. Just so you know, prophecy sounds like this mystical, weird word, but prophecy is simply about a a declaration of truth, a a presentation of truth. And it can be present truth as it is, or not understood but is, and it can also be a declaration of truth yet to be predictive prophecy. And the Bible talks about this. And look what the Bible claims has to happen if prophecies from God. Deuteronomy 18, verse 22. If what a prophet proclaims in the name of the Lord doesn't take place or come true... That is a message the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken presumptuously. It's from him, not from God, because God knows what's going to happen. Don't be afraid of that guy. The Bible itself says for prophecy to be from God, it has to be accurate, right? Well, you you need to know this. Every single prophecy in the Bible, every single prophecy in the Bible that should have or needs to have been fulfilled by this point has been with 100% accuracy. Every prediction in the Bible. There's no way that's a coincidence. It's impossible unless the person who wrote the book really knew. And I just want to give you a couple. And like I said, it could be technical. I'll try and make it simple. The first one, write down the name Cyrus. You can find his name in Isaiah chapter 44, verses 24 through 28. Continuing into chapter 45, verses 1 through 3, Cyrus. You might want to write that down. Maybe you want to name your son or your daughter. I mean, it doesn't matter anymore. Um, that, That name. But when this name was first given, it was more than 100 years prior to when this man lived. Right? And Isaiah predicts that a guy yet to be born named Cyrus 
would be king of a country yet to be formed called Persia. And that that king, Cyrus, and that country would be used to rebuild God's city and God's temple in Jerusalem, which was yet predictive. And it doesn't even make sense. It's saying that a country yet to be formed, Babylon, or a country right now in the province of Babylon, would be defeated by a country yet to be formed, Persia, by a king in that country named Cyrus, and they would rebuild Jerusalem and, and the temple, which is dumb because pagans don't rebuild God's stuff. They destroy it. They don't rebuild it. Doesn't even make sense. You want to be good at predicting the future, say the sun will come up tomorrow, you might get it, but don't do this kind of junk. But you know what happened? It came true. Tyre, write down Tyre. Goodyear. No, no, not that kind of Tyre. T-Y-R-E, it's a city. Tyre was an economic powerhouse in the day this prophecy was given in Ezekiel chapter 26. And it says Tyre would be destroyed. Didn't even make sense. Tyre, this economic powerhouse would be destroyed. Who's going to destroy it? No one can destroy it. It would become so destroyed that it would be a place where fishermen could dry out their nets. And it tells who would destroy it. A guy named Nebuchadnezzar would come along and destroy it. Well, he did. He came along and he destroyed it. But then the prophecy does something very interesting. It moves from singular he, Nebuchadnezzar, to plural they, speaking of other kings who would come and destroy it. And that's exactly what happened. And one of the best known of these kings that came and laid tire in a destroyed wasteland was Alexander the Great. We now know this is history, but when it was given in the Bible, it was predictive. This is not possible unless someone knew. God did. Daniel. Daniel gives us predictions all the way through the book, but in Daniel 2, 37 through 40 and 11, uh, 1 through 35, you know, God had him predict the Medo Persian Empire before it existed, the Greek Empire before it existed, the Roman Empire before it existed. He predicted a mighty king who would conquer the whole world. We now know him as Alexander Great would come and do it. And then he did something you, you can't do. He said, and then that conqueror's kingdom would be divided four ways, and that's exactly what then happened. Four generals took that. In four different ways. It was predicted in the Bible. It came true. How could people do that? They couldn't, but God could. Messiah, Jesus, the theme of all of Scripture. The predictions about him are amazing. I give you the verses. You can track them down. But the Bible, hundreds of years before he was to be born, predicted the birthplace, Bethlehem, which doesn't make sense, but it's where he was born. That he would suffer and die for other people's sins. Not for his own, but for other people's sins. That he would die with the wicked, but be buried with the rich. No one dies with the wicked and gets buried with the rich. It's a bad prediction. But it came true because he died with two criminals and he was buried in a rich man's tomb. The Bible teaches that he would rise from the dead. He wouldn't see decay. The Lord would not let him decay. There's no way the body won't decay unless it's risen from the dead. It talked about the type of death, that it would be crucifixion. I mean, the piercing of the hands. It was a torture that wasn't yet invented when predicted. And it said they would gamble over his clothes, and it's exactly what happened. Well, the Bible, if it were God's word, would be accurate in prophecy. It would be also accurate in history, and it is. History. I love how Jesus said it. In John 3.12, he says, I've spoken to you of earthly things, of things that are true here on earth, and you don't believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? What, what he's teaching there is if, if I can't get right the things of this world, how in the world are you going to take me as getting right the things of heaven? And yet, isn't it weird? There are a lot of people in this world who say, I don't believe the facts of the Bible. I don't believe the science of the Bible. I don't believe the history. I don't believe all that. But I believe Jesus really knew about spiritual things. Do you know how stupid that is? He didn't know anything about this world, but boy, I bet you he knew everything about that world. That's dumb. I mean, if he couldn't get this world right, he certainly can't get the next one right, but he could get this world right. 
And here's the interesting thing. All through history, people have dismissed, as we do today, the Bible as being God's word and true because it is historically inaccurate. They keep making this claim. It's historically inaccurate. It's not true. These things aren't true. These things never happened. But you know what's interesting? With the, with the advent and the genesis of archaeology, we're now making discoveries about the past that didn't used to be known. And you know, every single discovery of archaeology that has ever been made has done nothing to diminish the truth of the Bible and done everything to prove its historical accuracy. Throughout the centuries, people like us have rejected the Bible because it wasn't historically accurate and the things they rejected the Bible over have now been proven to be true. Let God be true and every man a liar. Boy, that's a true statement. And I'll just give you a couple of examples. Let's do Old Testament. And once again, I could get very technical. I'll just throw it out and simple and you can pursue it on your own. In Genesis 14... We have revealed to us a lot of specific history about a guy named Abraham, about a guy named Abraham raising up an army and rescuing his nephew Lot, the names of all kinds of kings that supposedly existed in that time and how one king was subservient to another king that no one believed. And they said the Bible's not true, none of this ever happened until archaeology proved that all of it's true and all of it happened. 1 Kings chapter 10, verses 26 through 29, we find a guy named Solomon was king and he had thousands of horses in a particular place in Palestine. And, and you know what they said? They said, there was no king named Solomon and there's no way he had thousands of horses in this part of the thing. It didn't happen. There's no way that happened until, oh, they were digging in Megiddo. You've heard of Megiddo. You've heard of Armageddon as the Valley of Megiddo. Well, we've stood there. They were digging there and you, you'll never guess what they found. They found proof of Solomon and they found the horse stalls. We've stood there as we take groups there. We'll be going there this May with a group from Northridge Church. Once again, people rejected the Bible as being foolishly inaccurate. And they're the fools. And God was found to be true. In the New Testament, in Luke chapter 2, we have the birth story of Jesus. And all the facts surrounding the birth of Jesus were discounted. They said, this never happened. This never happened. This never happened. It says there's a census that happened. They said there was no census. They said there was a governor named Quirinius, and they they said that was never there. And all the different elements of the story, but you know what archaeology has proven? Once again, the Bible was right. The people who reject it were wrong. The Bible also talks about all kinds of people who were dismissed as being nowhere in history, but now archaeology confirms 50 of those people who were once rejected are really true to history and the Bible was the only source that ultimately showed it until archaeology dug it up. You can read the March and April 2014 issue of the Biblical Archaeological Review and you'll see that. And then I go further. If the Bible were God's word, it would be powerful. Right? I mean, if God can speak the universe into existence, then his word should certainly have power. And it is. It makes the claim, Romans 1.16, Paul the Apostle says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not going to cower because it's the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. It'll transform lives, first the Jew, then the Gentile, for all people. Look at Hebrews 4.12. It says the word of God is living. It's not about what God once said. 
It is what God is now saying. It's living. It's active. It's not idle and stagnant. It's sharper than any double-edged sword. It, it literally, God's word, penetrates even to the dividing of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. You know, if the Bible were God's word, it could go in us and sculpt us and reshape us and remake us on the inside. And that's exactly what it does. I know because it happened to me. This book that I rejected and thought was so irrelevant to my life because religion was so irrelevant to my life has so transformed my life that I couldn't have lived this life without it. Without God's word, I would have never known how to love my wife, my kids, or other people. Without God's word, I would have never experienced purpose and meaning and significance. I would have pursued it in all the wrong ways. And the Bible has always positively transformed people, skeptics and otherwise. This is what Saul of Tarsus experienced, and he became the Saint Paul. And this is what Peter experienced, and David experienced in the Old Testament. And the same is available for you, for me, because God's word is true and is powerful. If the Bible were God's word, it would be relevant, right? It wouldn't be a bunch of useless information and and wasted words. It would be relevant, and it is. It makes the claim that all of it comes from God and it's profitable for teaching, for correcting, for rebuking, for training in righteousness. You want to become all God's created you become? The Bible says all you need is the Bible. Look at Psalm 119, 105. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light for my path. And here's what I found. When, when you genuinely understand the Bible, it squares with your reality doesn't make up stuff about how we're better than what we are. It doesn't make up principles that don't really work. It's not filled with stupid cliches like cleanliness is close to godliness. And by the way, if your mom told you that was from the Bible, it's not. The Bible is relevant and it reshapes us from the inside out. It's only irrelevant to those who don't know it, who dismiss it without knowing it. Every way I've looked at the Bible, it comes out that the people who say it's unreasonable and unintelligent to believe it are the ones who are honestly unreasonable and unintelligent because they're dismissing that which they don't even understand. I get being a skeptic. I've been there. I get doubting something like this. I get that we've been sold a bill of goods about a lot of things, that there's all kinds of stuff going on that's not, that they'll do all kinds of things for us that they, they won't ultimately do. I get all of that, but let me just tell you something. Don't apply it to the Bible because it's not true about the Bible. The Bible is what it claims to be, God's word true and it's reasonable and intelligent to embrace that and it's foolish not to which leads us to a so what I want you to know I, it's not our goal at Northridge it's not my goal as a teacher to give you a bunch of information and send you out going wow that's cool it's our goal to give you God's truth to the best of our ability in a way that's accurate and relevant to your life so that your life can be transformed by it if all you do is go out and go, wow, the Bible, it's kind of true, that really means nothing. Because you see, a lot of us, not all of us, but a lot of us came in this morning believing the Bible was true. Yeah, I believe it's true. Let's sing a song about it and go to church and, and then go about living our lives however we choose to live our lives. The problem is we believe it's true Theoretically, we don't live it as true. 
Do you realize it's no better to believe it's true theoretically and not live it as true? It's no better to do that than it is to not even believe it's true at all. And churches, including this one, are filled with people who claim the idea of it, but don't claim the reality of it. And I'm challenging you. Do you want your life to change? Do you want to experience life as God designed it? Then you have to stop thinking it's true and start living it as true. Since the Bible is God's word and true, let me give you a couple of application statements. Since that's true, we can count on it. We can stand on it. We can claim it, embrace it with no fear. Look at 1 Peter 1, 24 through 25. For all men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, the flowers fall. But the word of the Lord stands forever. You can count on it. It will always be there. It will not change. And this is the word that was proclaimed to you. This is what we have in the scriptures. What does that mean? Since the Bible is God's word and true, we can count on it. What does that mean? It means we can count on all of its promises. You say, boy, I need a savior. Well, boy, you've got one because the Bible says Jesus is the way, the truth, and life, and no one comes to the Father by, by him. You can count on it. You say, but what about all these other scriptures? What about all these other spiritual leaders? What about all these other spiritual leaders? Yep, they're out there, but you know what's happened to all of them? All of them have flaws in their teaching. All of them have inaccuracies. All of them died, and all of them are still dead. Jesus is different. Perfect died but rose again, still living, still interacting with us today. He's the way. You know, you can count on it. If you're broken, you can count on the promises of him bringing comfort and healing. If you're experiencing trouble in this world, you can count on the promise that though you'll experience trouble in this world, that you can be of good cheer because he overcomes the world. You can, you can count on him. It's important. If we're going to ultimately understand the Bible as God's word and true, then there's a huge application point. We're foolish to ignore it. We're foolish to discount it. Foolish. Look at Romans chapter 1, verse 22 and 25. Although they claim to be wise, we're brilliant. Like Bill Maher, like university professors, though they claim to be wise, they claim to be our superiors, they claim to know it all, they claim that we're the fools and we're ignorant for believing it, they became fools because they exchanged the truth of God for their own lie and worshipped and served created and temporary things which become nothing. It's a waste of living rather than serving the creator of things which, and who is forever praised. Since the Bible is God's word and true, we're foolish to ignore or discount it. Foolish. Since the Bible is God's word and true, we're wise to accept and trust it. We're not foolish to accept and trust it. We're wise to accept and trust it. In fact, it's the only reasonable, intelligent thing to do. Look at Matthew 7, 24. Jesus says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and, and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. He says, the world's going to be filled with storms, but if you want to stand, then and hear and live my word because it builds a foundation upon which you can stand. It's foolish to say we believe it but not live according to it. It's foolish. But given it's true, the Bible, we should make getting into the Bible and knowing God's word the daily priority of our lives. Because what could be more important in this world of darkness, in this world of doubt, in this world where we're locked in this moment and have no idea what to do next, what could be more important 
than hearing God speak. Since God's word can be reasonably and intelligently believed, that should be our prayer every single day. Word of God, speak. Word of God, speak. Every day we should be turning to it and opening it and praying the prayer of Psalm 119.18 where he says, open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things out of your law. Word of God, speak. And then when it speaks, we should accept it and trust it. And I actually think this is where transformation either happens or fails to happen. In a moment like this, when we've heard his truth, when we know there's something going on inside of us because that truth has this seemingly mystical power with God's spirit moving into our lives and even if we're skeptics and cynics and we don't want to believe something's going on in our life, the moment of transformation either happens or doesn't happen when we accept it and trust it or ignore it and move past it. And I want to encourage you to, in this moment, accept and trust the one thing you need most, the one thing each and every one of us needs most. Accept and trust the Bible's Savior because you need him. Without his forgiveness, you'll never be forgiven, which means you'll always be a product of your failures and you'll always be a product of your guilt. Without his healing, you'll always just be broken. Look what Acts chapter 4, verse 12 says. It says, salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Of course not. Because there's no other Savior who pre-existed his birth and came to earth and lived the perfect life we failed to live. Not one. And then took our place in dying for guilt, for the wages of sin is death, and then rose again to give us what all of us need, new life. You have to accept him and trust him or you'll never experience what you long to experience. And this could be your moment. Just before I finish the talk, I'm going to ask if you'd just bow in a word of prayer with me, just for a moment. And if you're ready, just take this step. Take my words, make them yours. Just say, God, I accept Jesus. I trust him. I don't know you. I've sinned against you. I've, I've lived short of what you made me for. But I believe, Jesus, you died on that cross for my sin. Forgive me. And rose again to give me new life. Make me new. By faith I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you prayed with me, we want to celebrate it. But we also want to help you in moving forward in your relationship with God. And we make it as easy as we possibly can. We have this program that we hand out if you're in one of our live services that says picture this on it. And on the inside is this perforated card we call a connection card. And all you have to do is fill it out and then check the circle in the bottom 
orange bold area that says you just prayed with me and there are boxes at all of our exits in all three of our campuses and all you have to do is put it in there we'll send you this information and if you're watching Northridge on demand just do the what next button and we'll do the same thing for you I mean grow in your relationship if if we're really going to experience the transformation from God's truth then we have to decide that once we accept the Bible Savior we're going to accept the Bible's teaching We're going to accept the Bible's teaching. We are going to embrace it. We're going to live according to it. And this is important. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says, It's given by God so that we can teach each other, rebuke each other, correct each other, and be trained to live the right kind of life. And if you want to be fully equipped, if you want to experience the fullness of life as God designed it, you need to accept and trust his teaching. Why not get in it? Why not live according to it? Stop saying you believe it. Start living like you believe it. And then finally, I just want to read you one verse. You can read the other as well, but I want to read you James chapter 2, verse 18, uh, verse 12. It says, speak and act, speak your words, and act, live out, as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. The Bible says, you'll know the truth and it'll give you freedom. The law is his truth. The law is the Bible, the scriptures we've been talking about. It says, you need to choose your words according to his truth, and you need to choose your life behavior according to his truth, as if you are going to be ultimately judged by this truth. The last thing you need to know, since it's reasonable and intelligent to believe that the Bible is God's word, and the Bible is true, You need to know what the Bible says. We're going to be judged by it. He's given us all the answers to the final exam. You know what a great student I would have been if I had all the answers given to me for the final exam? I had a couple of friends that stole a couple of tests and helped me out a little bit. But other than that, God, without cheating has given us all the answers to the final exam. We can all pass in Jesus' name. But you know what we do? We look at the answers and we make up different ones and we think we have better ones. And so when we stand before him, it will not be in joy and celebration. It will be in sadness and regret. But all that can change right now because our failures don't have to be final because in Jesus, we get a brand new start. And if we start embracing this truth, when we stand before him, it won't be with regret. It will be in joy that we actually filled in the blanks of our life with the right answers. I know it's hard in this world, but do this with me. Picture this. The Bible is true. And now with that picture, just think of how different your lives can be. I hope you'll experience it. Thanks for coming. We'll see you next time.